We just sang in such a beautiful way, a trio of songs, right, uh, since our services began. Songs that had such a touching message to them. He is my everything. He is my all. And previous to that, we had sung songs lifting so wonderfully and highly the matter of God's blessing on each of us. And today, how sweet it is that we can appreciate those blessings with the goodness and health at least sufficient to permit us to assemble and that we can offer to Him the nature of our worship. Now, if we sang that song, He is my everything, with truth and with earnestness, doesn't it speak such a powerful volume, a reminder of our life here and the nature of what the God of heaven would demand of us? In some ways, that's what is a part of our lesson this morning, under the heading of a notable prisoner. And in fact, the opening statement of this introductory slide directs your attention to that song one more time, He is my everything. Some particular songbooks have a second verse to that song. Ours happens not to, but the second verse says, He is our everything, where we collectively, as a congregation of the Lord's people, are able to lift our voices together in unison and praise Him to the fact that He is our everything. It is with that in mind, may I direct your attention to the bottom two statements. There is no one of us that surely would question, even in the slightest way, the sheer greatness of Jesus Christ. And the Bible on so many occasions speaks about that greatness. He is, after all, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one and only blessed potentate of heaven, 1 Timothy 6.15. He is the absolute monarch and head of the church, Colossians 1.18. And so to say all of that is to say in every circumstance and situation, wouldn't it be fair to adore to praise, to exalt and elevate Him above all else. And yet, there is the record of a notable prisoner, the title of the lesson this morning. Why don't we then take a journey through our discussion of that notable prisoner, and we will, of course, in so doing, bring ourselves to not only repeat, arguably, the one of the greatest episodes in the history of mankind, but we will also make some dramatic applications to us. If you'd be turning to Matthew chapter 26, we will begin that record in just a moment. Matthew chapter 26. And as we do that, it'll be a very familiar record in some ways. But nonetheless, there may be details that have slipped from our thinking, at least of late. And we'll be ready to revisit again and again the sheer greatness of this, of this particular record. Matthew chapter 26, it all begins like this. That chapter begins with several Jewish officials assembling in a particular place for a particular reason. And the text is very clear. These religionists were assembling, and their idea in their assemblies with Caiaphas was this. They want to use subtlety so that they can kill Jesus. Would you consider the irony of that? These were people bound by the, by the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. They would lift high the absolute commandments, and yet one of them was, Thou shalt not kill. And yet here they were plotting and planning with cleverness, admittedly, but cleverness nonetheless to put to death the Son of God. That's how much they hated Him. That's how much they wanted rid of Him. But don't you think it's terribly ironic that these who would be so quick to defend the Ten Commandments were also pretty quick to break it when they felt that it would lead to an advantagement of their position? But with that statement that begins the chapter, you'll notice we then quickly are told that there was one of the Lord's own, a man named Judas. 
He was the Iscariot, of course. And he, in fact, took the volition. He took the incentive to make some arrangements for 30 pieces of silver. I'll turn him over to you. And you and I remember that as that deed was finalized, don't you still find it incredibly interesting that the bargain price that Judas worked for was so low? How would you feel to be insulted by someone offering so pathetically little for your services? So pathetically minor for that of which you were capable. To give you some impression of this, 1,500 years earlier than this, Exodus chapter 21 had detailed the fact that if there was a situation where somebody's ox got loose and gored a servant that belonged to somebody else, how much had to be paid to the owner of the servant because you killed the servant and your ox when your ox got loose? You probably could guess it. 30 pieces of silver. So 1,500 years earlier, that was the bargain price you paid somebody if your ox got loose and killed somebody's servant. You'll notice over 1,500 years of potential inflation, Judas bargained for exactly the same. He didn't bargain for a lot. I think that's another insult to Jesus the Christ. Now with all that in mind, look at how the chapter proceeds next. Jesus, of course, made ready to observe the Passover with His apostles. He, of course, sent Peter and John, and they made ready the place where they could celebrate this. And as that celebration took place, you may well remember we are now approximately 12 hours this side of the crucifixion. Don't you know what weighed down the Lord's mind that night? He knew what was going to happen to Him the next morning. He knew what would the excruciating pain. And here He is officiating over this particular Passover celebration. And as a part of it, there came a time when He took the loaf and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And a little bit later, He took the cup after supper and said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, they didn't know what was about to happen in a few hours, but the Lord did. He knew every detail that was about to take place. And as all these events unrolled on that previous night, consider in your own mind what the distresses in the Lord's mind must have been. You'll notice as they concluded all those matters that evening, they sang a song. The Bible doesn't tell us what song they sang. It simply says in verse 30, they sang a hymn and then proceeded on a journey walking to the Mount of Olives. That walk would take them through the Kidron Valley. A stream flowed through that. As they crossed that valley, you may recall it prompted a very powerful discussion in the mind of the Master as He shared with them some things that were about to happen. I would suggest they were going to a place familiar to Jesus. It was, of course, a garden to which He had often resorted. A garden that would bring solace and peace and comfort. John 18.2 reminds us that Jesus frequented this place. And you and I can also understand how valuable it can be to find a solitary place sometimes away from the chaos of the world so that you can commune with God. In all that connection, we now appreciate along the way as they were walking to this place, Jesus spoke to His disciples. 
Now, they were all walking with him except Judas. Judas, remember, had left. And he told them about the death he was about to die. But he also told them, on the third day, I'll rise again. Now, you and I know full well they didn't completely appreciate that part of it at least. And in fact, as they all heard him say that, Peter was quick to reply, Lord, if everybody is offended, I'll never be offended because of you. He even made the assertion, I'll die for you if that's what it takes. And all the others spoke up and said something pretty similar. And Jesus told them, every one of you will be offended because of me this night. Every one of you. So far in this chapter, we have appreciated in a dramatic way the isolation of Jesus. Sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jewish religion is plotting to kill Him. And now His own apostles, He said, you're going to forsake Me. You're going to leave Me. He stood alone. But our journey isn't anywhere near ended. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, they did come to the Mount of Olives, and in particular to a garden in that particular place. It was called Gethsemane. As Jesus came to that garden, remember the other the eleven apostles at this point were with Him, and He told them, sit here. And then He took three of them. Peter, James, and John said, come with Me. And they went a little further, and He said, tarry and watch while I go yonder. And he went a little bit further, and oh, how heavy and sorrowful the text says he was. And he prayed with earnestness, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. However, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In that earnestness, Luke will tell us that his sweat was as drops of blood. That which weighed upon his mind. How would you and I feel if we knew we were going to have nails driven into us in less than ten hours? How would we feel if we knew that we would be treated as he knew he would be and all of that was going to happen in less than ten hours? Surely it's fair to say that our mind would be weighed down as well. I know it would. And yet our journey continues onward for the Lord had much more to share with them Because after all, no sooner had Jesus finished that last discussion with His apostles when a mob appears. Now Judas knew where the Lord was frequently going, and so he in fact came with that mob, those officers and those others of the Jewish consideration, and they came for the express purpose of arresting Jesus. They came to arrest the Master. And you can imagine as Judas planted the betrayal kiss upon the Master, of course it was dark. By this point we are approaching midnight. And Judas came. And as he betrayed the Master in this way, you may recall that Peter acted with a degree of initiative. Peter had a sword and he wielded that sword. And in his effort to defend Jesus, he cut off the right ear of Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest. Jesus, in calmness, miraculously healed that ear. And you and I appreciate what He had to say to Peter. Peter, put up your sword. Put up your sword, Peter. If this is what was involved, I could have called legions and legions of angels to deliver me from this moment. But that's not why I came. Put up your sword, Peter. 
At that point, they bound the hands of Jesus and led Him away. As a common criminal, they led Him first to a gentleman named Annas. He had been the former high priest, and he still wielded a fair amount of reputation. And so they took Jesus to Him. And as you can see on the slide, He didn't stay there very long. He was soon led to the current high priest, the man named Caiaphas. Inasmuch as he appeared before Caiaphas, remember, as he was the leader, if you please, of the Sanhedrin court, this council was convened. Can you imagine a court, a judge in Cookfield, choosing to hold court at 1 a.m.? I don't think any judge in his right mind would even offer such a proposal. And yet here was the Lord of the universe being held on trial at that unusual time of day. So far, it seems all the figures are lining up to help remind us in so many occasions how unjust this was. As they met, notice what else took place. By some means, they were seeking false witnesses. May I say that again? They seemingly were under the impression, never on any legitimate charge are we going to be able to accuse him reasonably. So they had false witnesses arranged, aligned, and as they presented their cases, isn't it odd that they didn't even agree among themselves? And so there was still no deliberate case that could be made against Jesus. Even the false witnesses didn't agree. But finally somebody said, I heard him say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. Borrowing the words of John chapter 2. The high priest interjected and said, There we have it! Blasphemy! The high priest then looked at Jesus and said, Don't you have anything to say? Because the Lord stood there in silence. Jesus never said a word. In the midst of all of this falsehood, in the midst of all of these statements made about Him, We don't know all the things the false witnesses said. The Holy Spirit didn't choose to preserve it. Finally, the high priest said, I want you to tell me, are you the Son of God? Jesus said, you say I am. And I'll tell you what. There's going to come a day you're going to see the Son of Man coming in His clouds in judgment. The high priest said, I've heard enough. He's guilty of blasphemy. What do the rest of you say? They said, we agree. So now they have arraigned Jesus on a charge of blasphemy. Under the Old Testament law, that was penalized by death. And so they thought they had what they wanted. But many years earlier, the Roman Empire had taken away from the Jews the power of capital punishment. They couldn't put anybody to death. So they now had to take him to Pilate. To get Pilate, the Roman official, to make the final declaration to put Jesus to death. Therefore, you may notice along the way we are reintroduced to Peter. Remember, he's the one that had the sword earlier and he'd run off. But he followed from a distance and was distantly present as they tried Jesus. However, as several identified him, he denied knowing Jesus. Three times, the last one even with cursing, he said, I don't know the man. Jesus had earlier told him, Peter, before the cock crows tonight, you'll deny me three times. And so it was. 
Can you still feel how Peter must have reacted when from a distance Jesus looked at him when the cock crew? Peter knew that what the Lord had said had come true. By this point, look at where we've come. So now early in the morning, we've now reached Thursday morning, they bind Jesus and they take Him away to appear before Pilate. Now I would ask you to note this. Isn't it true those Jewish persons must have had a pretty short night? Remember, they had met after midnight, and now here they were early in the morning taking Him to Pilate. They didn't get a lot of sleep, did they? Their heart was bent on evil. Their heart was bent in hatred and animosity against the only perfect one that ever had lived. The only one who could testify exactly of who and what they really were. Maybe it is in that light we now come to this. Judas, by this point, had realized, it seems, what he had done. He came back to the place and threw down the 30 pieces of silver and said, I don't want it. He now appreciated that the one whom he had betrayed was such that he was not going to free himself. Judas went out and took his life, hanged himself. But that doesn't stop the biblical record from proceeding. Upon receiving Jesus, what did Pilate do? Pilate, it seems, according to Luke's account, very quickly sent Jesus off to Herod because he learned Jesus was a Nazarene and Nazareth was actually in the jurisdiction of Herod. So he quickly wished to dispose of the case and let Herod deal with it. Jesus didn't stay very long in Herod's jurisdiction because Herod was excited to see Jesus, but this is what we learn. Herod wanted to see a sideshow. He wanted a magic display. He wanted Jesus to do some things to entertain Him, performing miracles, if you please. And Jesus would do none of it. And therefore, being somewhat dissatisfied, Herod insulted Jesus and then sent Him back to Pilate. And so Pilate now has to deal with it. Could you and I appreciate that Pilate was in the following spot? On the one hand was Jesus. And Pilate was under the impression, very strongly so, that Jesus had done no wrong and was not worthy of death. No less than five times in the Bible record, Pilate admits it. What evil has he done? He has done nothing worthy of death. But on the other hand were the Jews who wanted him killed. And you see, they wielded a fair amount of power in the Roman Empire for this reason. The Jews were known to be troublemakers. They were known to be those that if you in fact stir them up, they will make your life miserable. And many a Roman official had had to deal with the Jews who it seems were dissatisfied about something. So Pilate didn't want to stir them up. The record goes on like this. Pilate had conversation with Jesus, and Pilate, the text says, marveled that Jesus would say nothing. He sat there in silence. He wouldn't respond to the accusers. He wouldn't respond to the direness of his circumstances. The only time in which he would respond is when an issue of truth apparently came before him. Are you the Son of God? Are you the truth? And the Lord told Pilate that he was. I came to bear record of the truth, he said. Maybe it is in that lie. Pilate finally came upon a plan. 
I would suggest this plan, it would appear from the biblical text, is one in which Pilate had great hope. It will allow me to get out of this situation. Here was the plan. Every year, at that season of the year, it was customary for there to be the release of a prisoner. A prisoner whom the Jews would wish to be released. Now, earlier in the Bible text, we have the statement that this, again, was a well-known matter. Now, how this tradition came about, no one seems to know. I could find no source that would highlight where such an idea ever came from. But wouldn't you and I agree, this is a terrible idea to turn loose a criminal at this time every year just because it's a tradition? All of us have a much greater sense of justice than this. This person needs to pay for the crimes they've committed. And to turn them loose just on the consideration of a tradition? How foolish. At this particular season of the year, there was in the prisons at that time a well-known prisoner. It's the one of whom Brother Dennis read in the lesson text earlier. Could I direct your attention to Matthew 27, verses 15 and 16? Now, at that feast, the governor was wont to release the, unto the people a prisoner whom they would. Before we finish the reading, let's just revisit it. At this season, which was the Passover season of the year, the Romans would agree to release a prisoner whom the Jews would want released. And it would seem the whole reason for this was to appease those Jews so they won't be upset to appease them so that they won't stir up any trouble. The text says the governor was wont to do this. I don't know how many years this habit had been in place. I don't know how many times that, this prisoner, that a prisoner had been released. But at this time, verse 16 now says, And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Did you notice this prisoner was notable? He wasn't just a common criminal. He wasn't just some common lawbreaker. He was well known among the people of that day. In a day long before there was computer and long before there were other things that could make the sharing of information easy, a lot of people knew about Barabbas. Whatever it is he had done was well known. They had a notable prisoner, and Pilate had an idea. I'll tell you what, you Jews, I will give you a choice. Do you want me to release Jesus, or do you want me to release Barabbas? And don't you know, he just knew they'd pick Jesus. For here's a common criminal, a criminal known as a notable matter, and surely they won't want him released. Surely they'll prefer Jesus. Could I offer this thought? Barabbas was actually in prison. He had been incarcerated for crimes committed against the state. Jesus was being offered, but he had never been incarcerated for those reasons. Now, it's true the Jews had arrested him, but not the Romans. The Romans had never arrested him, and he was not a prisoner of the Roman state. What right did Pilate even have to offer him as a possible choice? Again, he was not in a situation like Barabbas was. But Pilate saw it as a scheme. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Pilate narrowed it down to two and you get to choose. 
you'll notice on that slide, as that plan was brought before them, you'll notice that Pilate's words were strong. May I read them to you directly? Verse number 19 in, verse, in chapter 27 reads, And he was set down on the judgment seat. His wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have dreamed many things. I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? And while he was sitting in judgment, oddly enough, his wife sent some emissaries and interrupted him. Don't you have anything to do with this man named Jesus? I've suffered a lot because of him in a dream. I will at least admit at that point in our discussion today, Pilate has offered them the choice. He allowed them to pick. You'll notice on the slide, this notable prisoner was one, now we could say, we do know some of the things of which he was guilty because the Bible tells us. He was guilty of at least three crimes. The Bible informs us he was guilty of insurrection. The Bible does inform us he had committed murder. And the Bible does inform us he was a thief. And there you have it. Do you prefer Jesus or do you prefer an insurrectionist who has committed murder and who has stolen? You pick. Now at this point, do you remember with me that it was only a few days earlier, Sunday of that very same week. Now we've reached Thursday morning, admittedly. So Sunday, five days earlier. The people had so accepted the Christ. He rode into Jerusalem triumphantly. They strode palm branches in front of Him and hailed Him the coming King. And five days later, it's Him or Barabbas. In the mind of the people, He's fallen a long way in five days, hasn't He? Let's read on. In chapter 27, verse 20 now reads, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? So there was a little bit of time involved in which he says, You make your choice. You think it through. Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas released? And all the while, the chief priests and the elders were working the crowd. And they said, When he asks, you demand Barabbas released. When he asks, you make sure to demand Barabbas released. And so the next verse then says, The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? Very dutifully in response to what the chief priests and others had said, they say Barabbas. Then Pilate said this, verse 22, What shall I then do with Jesus, which is called Christ? I'm sure at that point, Pilate didn't envision that they would ask for the release of Barabbas. But they did. And so now he's left with this question, what do I do with Jesus then? They answered like this. They all say unto him, apparently in unison, let him be crucified. The governor said, why? What evil hath he done? Let's pause again. 
Here was a pagan, a heathen, who said, Look, what evil has this man done? You want him crucified? You have not placed one legitimate statement of formal crime upon his shoulders. Not one thing. And you want him killed. The verse ends by saying, But they cried out the more, Let him be crucified. Can you imagine? Can you picture the crowd? So they first had answered, crucifying, but here you'll notice as Pilate asked again, even more boisterously, crucifying. Can you feel the animosity and the hatred that those chief priests and others had worked among the people? At that point, that slide ends by saying, the reminder, of course, that the events proceed pretty quickly. I've asked you to observe that we are now within a couple of hours of the crucifixion. All that was left. Pilate now took a basin of water and proverbially washed his hands of the matter. And he turned Jesus, after scourging him, over to those Jews. And he declared that the Romans take care of things as the Jews demanded of him. That scourging was an almost inhumane beating. They tied the victim up and then flailed away at him. No doubt the Lord excruciatingly suffered even in that. And quite often, people that were scourged died in the scourging. But Jesus didn't. He survived it. He survived it. But after surviving it, of course, he was taken to Golgotha. And they nailed him to that cross. And it was nine o'clock in the morning. And you and I remember that he lasted through six hours in total on the cross. The first three, at least, it was in light. And then darkness came upon the land. And he died at three in the afternoon. Thursday afternoon. And with all of that, of course, you and I will never cease to lose our amazement at what the Lord did for us. I would suggest that all the while we have looked at least at some things that I've highlighted for you on this slide that just merely quickly summarize some of what we noted. But as He was crucified, that was left as the final act in death for the most terrible of prisoners, the terrible, most terrible of criminals. And here was the Son of God who made His death that way. It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? And yet, as we close that slide, what happened to Barabbas? He's never mentioned again in any detail, at least in the Bible. But Barabbas went free. The Son of God was put to death, but the criminal went free. Isn't it ironic? Doesn't it almost twist at your act in justice to think that God would allow this to happen? And yet He did for us. Let's make a few applications to close the lesson. With the saga of this notable prisoner before us, let's revisit a few of those particulars like this. First of all, Barabbas was called a notable prisoner. Maybe that wording is worthy of some remark. That word notable occurs in the original language a few times in the Bible, and it could have reference, depending on the context, to that which is very, very good. In other words, it's a superior reference. There's an example of that in Romans 16, 7. 
where there two particular in individuals were said to be of note among the apostles. Their service to Jesus was so superior. But there are times that word can be used in a very negative way. A person is maybe worse than you can even appreciate. That's how it's used here. Barabbas was of note. He was notable. When used that way, it means, as you can see on the slide, notorious. It means infamous. That's the kind of prisoner he was. As we mentioned earlier, we know that he was guilty of insurrection. The Bible says so. And we know that he was guilty of murder. The Bible says so. And we know that he was guilty of stealing because the Bible says so. It's not difficult to put those together and at least imagine a connection. You and I today have seen instances in which someone is opposed to the government for some reason. And so they stir up a mob of people. That's insurrection. But in that insurrection, they perhaps with initiative and with aggression take the life of somebody. Well, that's murder. And quite often as they stir up that crowd, they often take over a city or take over a place and then they loot the businesses that are there to avail themselves. That's stealing. Maybe Barabbas had been behind something like that. At the very least, the words in those connections are used in relation to him. To say the least, he was a notable prisoner. Everybody knew about Barabbas. But point number two is this. The people chose Barabbas. Not only the religionists, those chief priests and elders, but remember, they prompted the people and they picked Barabbas too. When given the choice of him or Jesus, they chose Barabbas to be released. And they chose to be done with Jesus, whatever thus is left. Oh, what a thought to consider this. Embedded in your thinking as well as should I, Jesus was the best that there ever was, by far. And they didn't want Him. They didn't want Him. The best by far, and they didn't want Him. May I suggest, doesn't it paint a cloud over the human family to think that the consideration of humankind had reached the point where the God of heaven had dipped Himself into living upon the planet illustrating the absolute perfection that went with Jesus, the nature of who He was and what He stood for, and they didn't want Him. But who did they want? Not just a common, ordinary citizen. That would have been bad enough. They wanted a criminal, and not just any criminal, the worst kind there was. They wanted an insurrectionist who was guilty of murder and stealing. That's who they wanted. They didn't want Jesus. You can see why the God of heaven's heart must have broken when He knew what His Son was going to have to endure and the way He would have to endure it. These two lessons remind us, isn't it true, that Jesus had never sinned in any way. No guile had ever been in His mouth. He'd never harmed anybody. He certainly was not an insurrectionist. He only told the truth. Wasn't it true that Jesus on one occasion had said, Render to Caesar what's Caesar's? He wasn't against the Roman government. But render to God what's God's. Matthew chapter 22. 
And yet here he was, the one they did not pick. Lesson number three and the final lesson of the morning. May I suggest that in a very principled way, there's not much difference than to the situation in which you and I are today. Every one of us have a choice. You cannot avoid it. Pilate gave those people of that day, you choose, it's Jesus or Barabbas. Nobody else is up for consideration. You choose, and today I choose, and so too do you. Will we choose Jesus, or will we choose somebody or something else? And quite often, that which is chosen by us is of the most sordid type. We don't choose what's innately good, because the Bible doesn't permit that choice. You'll notice on the slide, again, our choices are these. On the one hand is Jesus with His love. Aren't we told in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. On that same side with Jesus is perfection embodied. Absolute sinlessness. But not only with that, we see sheer goodness in every way. Acts 10.38 tells us He went about doing good. On the one hand is that choice, but as if that's not enough, He also says, look, I'll give you eternal life if you follow Me, if you obey Me. How many times did He speak about the nature of what He had to offer? In words such as these, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Do you hear him? Surely we do. In addition to all those other things, his goodness is seen so powerfully. But look on the other hand. The other hand is the devil. The other hand is Satan. And he has so little to offer. He can offer maybe a momentary pleasure. But oh, what heartache comes with what He offers. He never brings about goodness and peace and harmony and love. And He never brings about those innate characteristics of sheer identity. He brings confusion. He brings heartache, hatred, variance, emulations, and envy. And He will disturb brethren whenever He can. He brings about nothing good. And yet, how many times do we stand and say, You choose, and I want the devil. What do I then do with Jesus? Crucify Him. We make the same choice the mob made. Now, we often don't think of it that way. We often paint it in a much more rosy picture than that. But the consideration's identical. Jesus, of course, offered perfection then. And He offered union with God. And today He still does. The haunting question for all of us is then, perhaps the one embodied in Judges 2, verse 2. When there, God asked the people, Why have you done this? Seen this way, there could be no possible good reason. Why would we ever pick the devil over Jesus? Why? But yet we do. But yet we do. Let's close the lesson with an invitation. On this final slide, 
I've tried to highlight the fact that we painted a picture leading up to the notable prisoner called Barabbas. And they picked him to be released, and all the while to be let done with Jesus, whatever would happen. And that ended up to be crucifixion. Because the mob, of course, wanted him crucified. And yet today, they chose Barabbas. How often do we pick the devil? Every time we sin, we pick the devil. And I know that ought to hurt our heart when we think what the Lord wants us to pick and how we fail Him. May we never have a heart that isn't tender enough to say, My God, I'm sorry. And I'll try to do better. And I want to change because I know that like the crowd picked Barabbas, I don't want to pick the devil. But many times I end up doing it. May we not allow weakness to overcome us. May we understand in the words of Matthew 26, verse 41, that the flesh often, you see, is so weak, but the Spirit is willing. It could be in this assembly today that there's one or more who maybe has realized you've picked the devil too long, just like they picked Barabbas. You know now, or at least have reflected upon what what it has caused. In the aftermath of their choosing Barabbas to be released, we mentioned earlier that, of course, Jesus didn't in frustration say, I can't believe you picked him. What else did I ever do to harm you? And yet the Lord never said that. He simply went about walking to Calvary and letting them nail the nails in Him. And on that cross, He nonetheless could say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. And so, a few weeks later, the doors of the church would be flung wide open. And all who would wish to obey the gospel could. And that very same group that had put him to death at Passover at Pentecost, they could obey the gospel and be saved from the very same sin of putting him to death. Today, we don't have to wait six or seven weeks for some other notable holiday. Today's the day of salvation. If you've picked the devil, you need to make a change today. Pick Jesus, won't you? Let Him rule your heart with fullness and with life, and He will take you home to heaven if you'll follow Him with faith. Today, if we could be of some assistance to you in publicly obeying the gospel, don't delay. Come down this aisle right now while we stand and sing.